I don't think the self is static. I don't think you find yourself, you create your sense of self, which is an ongoing experience. It's malleable, it's fluid, it's constantly emerging from your experiences, from your interactions, from the things that you're learning. And so if you go, this is who I am now, and then you live 15 years and you didn't bother (laughs) to create your sense of self, to evolve your sense of self, to start acting like this person here in this reality, and you're still acting like you're in college because that was authentic when you were in college, that's the problem. So imagine waking up one day feeling like you've just lost your sense of identity, looking in the mirror, wondering, who am I really? What happened to that person I used to be? And who do I want to be? And how do I want to show up in my life and be seen in ways that I'm not? Well, my guest today, psychotherapist Sarah Kubrick, has gone deep into the experience that she calls profound self-loss, what's really happening and what we can do about it. The journey back to yourself often begins by realizing something essential is missing. In her powerful new book, It's On Me, Accept Hard Truths, Discover Yourself, and Change Your Life, Sarah blends her personal story with insights from philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience to offer wisdom and practical steps for anyone seeking to reconnect with their true self. Born herself into war for nearly the first decade of her life, She later resettled as a refugee in Canada, and Sarah's interest in psychology emerged from a childhood marked by complex relationships and a continual quest to understand humanity in all its messiness and absurdity, and deeply passionate about helping people live authentic, free, and meaningful lives. She brings both personal experience and professional expertise to this vital topic. In our conversation, we explore the painful emptiness of self-loss, often triggered by major life changes, and how she views self-discovery as an ongoing practice of curiosity, playfulness, and the courage to run small experiments that help reveal who you are and what you value apart from others' expectations, leading to a rediscovering of who you really are, imperfections, reality, and all. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. 
hosted by Juliana Ertube, a special education expert. This season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Before we dive into some of the ideas specific to um, the new book and just to your work, zooming the lens out a little bit, I'm always fascinated by what brought people to do the thing that they do. And for you, mm-hmm. it seems like this is deeply personal. You survived two wars um, by the age of nine, born in Bosnia. I have to imagine, and, and tell me if this is true, that that experience in some way might have planted seeds that eventually blossomed into the work that you're now doing. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I think you're phrasing that very politely. <laughs> you're like, maybe, perhaps, but yes, a- absolutely. I think from a really young age, I was confused by humanity. I think when you see so much suffering and so much pain, I guess, uh, you're always wondering why. Like, I was obviously naive. I didn't understand the politics and how everything kind of unfolded. But I think when you're hiding every night in the bunkers, when you're not sure if your parents are alive, when you're not sure why you're the bad guy or the good guy and you're hearing all these narratives, I think you get really confused as a child. And part of what got me into the work of psychology was just understanding human nature. Like, why do we hurt each other? What is resilience? What makes humans tick? And I think... I couldn't make sense of my own childhood. And that's probably one of the things that propelled me into this work. And eventually that curiosity turned into something much deeper, which was how do I help people alleviate the pain that they're going Mm. through? But I think at the very start, it was like trying to understand why things were happening the way they were happening and trying to understand myself. I think, you know, there's always a joke in psychology of like, you want to know what someone's struggling with, like read their thesis, like... (laughs) It's always deep. It's not always, but mostly deeply personal work. Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense. Not too long ago, we had Daniel Kahneman in conversation here, who I guess he's probably about 80, 81 when we chatted. He was sharing a story about how he grew up in what was then Nazi-occupied France and remembered walking home. He He wasn't supposed to be out as a young Jewish kid in Paris found himself having to walk home from a friend's house when he was six years old at night and turned his sweater inside out. So there was like no insignia that he would be noticeable and found himself walking down the same street as an SS officer and was terrified. And the officer approached him, looked at him. I believe he said he picked him up, showed him a picture of his own son who was the same age and kind of patted him on the head, gave him like a smile and like just blessed him on basically And that experience stayed with him because again, it was like, this was supposed to be just the, the, you know, a representation of the scariest, most awful thing in the middle of a horrendous experience. And yet there was this weird 
divergence of like, how do I square these things? I would imagine as a kid, there were things like that that you experienced as well. Oh yeah, for sure. I think, you know, when you're a child, you have this beautiful lens of everything is good in the world. And I think unfortunately, as we grow up, that's kind of taken away from us with different life experiences. And I think as much as there was fear that I didn't understand, there there was always so much goodness. Like, you know, in the bunkers, there were strangers that like made sure they got candy for the kids, which was so hard to come by. And there were people, you know, everyone kind of threw in their mattresses in the bunkers, but it's like, there were those who were like, Hey, it's quieter here. Cause everyone's kind of playing cards and drinking and trying to entertain themselves. And it was like, okay, like let's make sure the kids have a place to sleep. And this is a comfy place for the kids and we can make forts. And I think there was like glimpses of just such humanity in humane times that I think really stand out to you. And those moments of like, you know, um, I have one particular moment that I kind of briefly talk about in the book of crossing a bridge. And at the time during the NATO bombings, all the bridges were being bombed. And so being on a bridge during like a a siren call was super scary because you had no idea if that bridge would be bombed. And so I remember with my mom being in like the middle of the bridge as the sirens went off and watching a plane come towards us. And that's probably one of the most horrifying moments of my life. And we were just like running Mm. across the bridge. And there was absolutely no way we could have made it if they decided to bomb that bridge. And luckily they didn't. And I think it's interesting to see as a child where I'm like, did they see us and just choose not to? Because they saw like my mom and I were on there. Like, I think you create all these narratives of like, was the day, maybe they chose not to because they saw a child running on there, or maybe it just wasn't part of the plan. But I think as a kid, you're always faced with like, wow, was that just the greatest gift from a stranger that they offered me? Or was that just a fluke? And I think there's a lot of experiences like that where it's kind of left to interpretation. Yeah, I would imagine so. Kind of brings us to the topic of um, your new work, actually, in the new book, which is this deep and fascinating exploration of this the self and also the loss of self and how it affects us, how it occurs in our lives and what we do about it. And you use this phrase like self-loss. Which is really interesting, right? And and from what I understand, your training is psychotherapy, right? Which I feel like is a little bit unusual in how a lot of people pursue education in the world of therapy these days. There's been such a tilt towards CBT and the more sort of like immediate and behavioral things. So I'm curious about like you saying, this is the thing that's really drawing me and how that then turns around and forms like this really deep dive into like, what exactly is the self and how does it affect us? So I stumbled across existential analysis quite accidentally, I want to say. I think from a young age, I was reading very existential literature without understanding it was existential, like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, who I think at their core are existentialists, but wrote novels. And I think because I was so young and I had so many kind of complex childhood experiences, it was the only authors that I felt really resonated with me. In retrospect, I'm like, that's a bit worrying. Like, that should have been a red flag to my parents. <laughs> it's like other kids are reading comic books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm there reading like right. Crime and Punishment and like notes from the underground. It's like, mm. but it was, you know, I don't think it raised flags for my parents because they had to read it in high school mm. as part of their education. So it was quite normalized. And so I think I always had kind of an existential mindset 
And I tried to avoid it for a very long time. So when I um, went to, you know, undergrad, Bachelor of Science in Psychology, and then I was like, you know what, I'm going to do like the neuropsych route. CBT sounds good. I love the Freudian deterministic kind of lens. And it's so funny to look now. And I think part of why I was so drawn to it was because it allowed me to ignore the deeper questions in my own suffering. And that's not to say that these approaches do that. It's just how I use them. I was like, great, let's look at my behavior and my cognition and let's not look at the deeper questions that are actually what is triggering me or what I'm grappling with. And then in grad school, I had a couple professors that were existential analysts, which is super rare in North America. And the way that they present the information, I was like, oh, shoot, that's so interesting. And I think you know, I had my unraveling I talk about in the book of like figuring out that I didn't know who I was and that that was an incredibly painful experience in my life. And part of that was sitting, you know, in these trainings and existential analysis, they'd be like, what do you value? And when you look at yourself, what do you see? And I think just being bombarded with these sort of questions, I realized that I didn't know the answers. And so figuring out my own self-loss and figuring out that that's what was happening eventually led to me recognizing it in my clients and conducting research that was always kind of on the peripheral of self-loss for about seven years during my master's and my doctoral work. And then I was like, you know what? I'm seeing a global existential crisis. I think it's time we start to talk about the self. Mm. So that was a really rambly answer that we <laughs> that we can. It's like, we can tell, I was like, but that's kind of where, it, it, yeah, it it lent itself of like personal experience and being like, wow, this is a really cool philosophy. And then ironically enough, realizing that the things I was studying, I was actually experiencing. And that's always fun. Yeah, it is interesting too, right? Because I, I feel like we're, so many of us are in this moment in culture right now where we're suffering and we feel a sense of suffering and there's enough around us that we can point to and say, oh, that's the source. Oh, that's the source. Oh, that's mm. the source. And maybe it contributes to it, right? I'm sure it does. Like so many things are, they're going to pile on to a certain extent. But then there's this deeper thing, which is a profound lack of a sense of identity and meaning that is underneath that, that, that piles on this sort of like compound vehicle for suffering or for questioning or for confusion. And we don't realize that that's there among the mix because we can point to all these external factors and there's other stuff that's happening on a much deeper level inside of us. Mm -hmm. So I, I love the fact that you're sort of saying, okay, CBT is not bad. It's not that there are all these other great therapies that work. They're great, but there are other modalities that we can use to take a different look inside of ourselves and maybe under uncover some things that would really help us that we're not really looking at. Yeah. I had a journalist ask me, they said, well, millennials are known for trying to like self-realize and self-actualize. How is your book even appropriate given that like so many millennials are, you know, working towards themselves? And I, that was a really interesting question because I went like, the fact that we're all trying to self-actualize shows you the gap. Right. <laughs> so if we're not self-actualizing, we're trying to self-actualize, whatever that means in different modalities, it's like, what does that mean our current about our current state? And so I thought it was kind of an interesting question just because, you know, so many of us want to feel whole. So many of us want to feel 
self-possessed. So many of us want to feel like we have ownership of our lives and live fulfilling lives. And I think millennials are the generation that's like, we're not going to work nine to five. We're not like so much kind of rebellion and changing the script of society and doing social media. And I think that all shows that we're so desperate to get close to who we are and we're changing everything up. And I think that that's great, but that also shows us that as a generation, we might be struggling to figure out who we are and why we're here. I think with a lot of freedom comes anxiety and Kierkegaard talked about it. Everyone talks about it. And I think millennials have pushed so many boundaries and created so much more freedom, which is amazing. But I think we also didn't anticipate the anxiety and the sense of disorientation that comes with something like that. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I love that you brought up Kierkegaard. One of the, the quotes that I've returned to so many times in my life, his line, anxiety is a digitness of freedom. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is so true. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Um, we can't run from that, you know, and we try and we try and shut that down. But unwittingly, when we do that, we shut down our own freedom rather than just learning how do we live with this? <laughs> how do we actually deal with it? Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. 
When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You've used the the phrase self-loss or loss of self a couple of times now. What are we actually talking about when when we use that phrase? So I have two definitions. One is self-estrangement, lack of congruency, lack of alignment. I think about it as like waking up one day and going, I don't know who I am. And I'm really not sure how I ended up in this life that I'm living. It's like when you drive home and you don't really remember driving home because it's so automatic and you're an autopilot and you're pulling into your driveway and you go, well, okay, I'm home. And I think a lot of people wake up and go, what the heck is this? Like, (laughs) I am married. Do I want to be married? I have this job. Do I want this career? And I think it's just this moment of estrangement and understanding that the person that you are feels like a stranger to you and that the life that you live feels estranged and distant and disconnected. And I think it's slightly different than just being inauthentic. You know, we talk authenticity is a hot topic on Instagram. And I think, you know, um, lack of authenticity can be uh, saying no when you want to say yes. And I kind of see it as you're deep diving and you're in the ocean, but you still understand where the surface is. You're still like, I wanted to say yes, but I said no, or I wanted to say no, but I said yes. So it's like, I'm swimming in the deep, but I know where I can go to get my next breath. Well, self-loss is you're so deep underwater, you're being tossed around that you have no idea where the surface is. You know, you need to start swimming in a direction or you're going to die, but you also understand that you have no idea which direction to go and that you might still die if your actions and your next swim is in the wrong direction. So it's a much more serious state of disorientation. And, you know, my, which leads us to my second definition, which is self-loss is our failed responsibility to be ourself. And that sounds a bit harsh and it's not intended to. I think it's a very liberating concept. But if you have failed to be yourself, you will feel lost. And there's no such thing as a neutral action. So you can't be neutral. Either it's bringing you closer to your sense of self because your sense of self is something you create. So it's an authentic sense of self. Or your action is creating an inauthentic sense of self. No action creates nothing. And I think that's, you know, when we fail to be intentional and make sure that all our decisions are creating an authentic sense of self, that's when we have failed to take responsibility and we have become inauthentic and eventually for some completely lost. Yeah. That word responsibility, I know for a lot of people is triggering because it kind of says, this is on you, which literally is the title of your book. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, but at the end of the day, you know, like as one of my dear friends, Mel Robbins often says, no one's coming to save you. It really is on us. Yeah. You know, I want it to be a liberating concept. Mm. Like responsibility is where you find your freedom. It is not about blame. I think I came to that moment of like, no one's going to save me when I was at the airport 
having my very first panic attack, surrounded by the paramedics, my sisters crying on the phone with a doctor. They thought I was having a stroke. And I realized that in that moment, my sister would have done anything to save me, anything to save me. And she couldn't. And that was so, so scary for me. And I realized in that moment, literally and metaphorically and figuratively, that the only person that has any control is me. And I think that as much as we want to be saved and as much as people want to save us, it's not actually an empowering stance. And I think realizing that if you have created a life you don't like, and if you have created a person you don't like or love or respect, you can use those exact same tools and that same freedom and those opportunities to now create someone you do want and love and respect. And I think that responsibility just shows you how much freedom you have to change and to have what you want to have and live the life you want to live. And so for me, it's actually a really empowering statement. It's on me rather than like pointing fingers. It's on me. It's on you. Do it. And I think it's funny that humanity has somehow morphed responsibility into a negative thing. Like how? (laughs) It's funny because I think as you're describing that, I'm like picturing a view of somebody in an office in a job. And everyone has gotten a message from the manager of a team and basically like, we need to be in the conference room now, stat, right? And then the manager opens the door, you know, like you hear it fling open and walks in and says, this just happened. Who's responsible? And I feel like that is the frame that so many of us bring to that word, maybe because that's sort of the context that it's often been offered up just culturally, rather than saying, no, actually- Responsibility is like the other side of the coin of power and agency. Yeah. And and what if we always say like anytime there's one, there's got to be the other. And that puts us in a really, in a strong stance to actually affect change. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. And I think even how we tell other people they're responsible for things. I mean, we're part of the issue. We're part of the cultural narrative that shames responsibility. I think being wording it as like, you get to take ownership, you get to create change, you get to be the person you want to be. And we, you know, we have somehow made that into authenticity and we use authenticity to represent that, which I think is beautiful. But most people don't know that authenticity as a phrase comes from Heidegger and that he means ownness, owning of one, like possession. And so to me, it's like authenticity is responsibility. There is no distinction almost between the two. And I think that's kind of the link that we're missing, but hopefully people will see responsibility and authenticity in the same light because they offer you the same things. Yeah, I agree. Hopefully so. When somebody is in the throes of the experience of self-loss, it's got to affect them. What in your practice, in your experience, what do you see as sort of the most recognizable consequences of how the experience of self-loss manifests in people's lives? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's so diverse and so vast. I would say often I'll have clients who, when you ask them a question, will go, I don't know. I don't know. And then you'll kind of, okay, do you really not know? Do you not have access to the knowledge? Do you not have you not practiced? Have you not tried? Or do you genuinely not know? And it's interesting to see people who feel lost. It can be something really profound where you're like, I don't know what my meaning in life is. Then you can ask them really concrete questions. Like, how did you feel in this moment? They'll go, I don't know. Mm. And I think the not knowing of self is really fascinating because it'll come out in phrases. And then the other way that I see it manifest is 
relationships. This is such a huge one. They have a really hard time having healthy relationships or maintaining relationships, but that's because who is the other person having a relationship with? It's really difficult. If you don't know who you are, your partner's going to struggle to know who you are. You're going to struggle to find the right partner that aligns with your values and morals and wants and preferences if you don't know who that person is. And so I think relationships are often a really strong indication. And then there's, you know, body. When individuals come in and they just absolutely hate their body, I think sometimes that's an indication of self-loss just because I have never met someone who hated their body and loved themselves. And I always say that, you know, and I think that's because your body is the self. Your body is not just something you possess. It's also who you are. And I think there's a lot of philosophy out there that divides the two and actually makes that relationship quite contentious. And I think, you know, we now have the entertainment industry and social media that makes people treat their bodies like tools and projects and property. And when they mistreat their bodies, what they're making it impossible to do is create a sense of self that's holistic and that's really representative of who they are. And so there are just so many ways that self-loss manifests. And again, it's not pathological. I'm never saying like it should be in the DSM. I'm saying it's a human experience that's quite painful that we don't have vocabulary for and that needs to be addressed with a, with a degree of seriousness because it has pretty serious consequences. And so I, I think it manifests in many ways. As you're describing some of this, um, a picture popped into my eyes, actually a memory from quite a long time ago. Many years ago, I found myself on a dive boat in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. And we were living out there for a week. And one night we went night diving. It was a new moon, so there was no light anywhere. It was pitch black out. And when you dive, you have a vest that you sort of, you wait and inflate so you're neutrally buoyant. You're not floating up or down. You're just sort of like wherever you push yourself, you go. And we dropped into the water and we each had flashlights or torches. And in the middle of me being there, the only orientation that you had was the flashlight kind of showing you which way, where the reef was, what was down or pointing up where you could kind of see the glimmer against the top of the water. My light went out. So all I had was pitch black. I didn't know what was up. I didn't know what was down, what was sideways. I couldn't feel anything around me. And the experience of that to me was abject terror. Yeah. You know, because it was just like, I don't know what move I need to make right now to find my way. That is a dramatic version, but it sounds like that's kind of what people would experience to a certain extent when you're talking about self-loss. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think actually the metaphor I use in describing the book is so similar to what you just described. And it's pure terror. It's staring at the void. It's, it's acknowledging you have to do something and not knowing what to do. Mm. And I think we always talk about different types of threats. What we never talk about is the existential threat. There's so many people that are alive, but not truly living or not truly existing. And I think that terror that you felt and described so well, I think that's why you feel in those moments where you're like, okay, life becomes this black void and you have no idea where to move. And you also understand that you are quite literally threatened. And so many of us have this kind of existential death while still being alive. And that's a really, really scary place to be. Yeah. 
I'm wondering also, is there a flip side to this? You know, if you study mm. Eastern philosophy, for example, a common thread across almost every Eastern tradition is the pursuit of exercises, practices, paths that effectively help you to liberate yourself from that sense of self. And so it's almost like self-loss is positioned as an aspiration mm-hmm. and that there's a certain freedom that comes from non-grasping to a very like rigid or defined sense of identity that mm-hmm. if you can stand in that place, if you can allow yourself to be in that place, that there's a spaciousness and expansiveness of freedom that is almost described as bliss. In fact, like samadhi, like in, in Sanskrit, translates to bliss, which is the aspiration of that path. I'm curious whether you see, are there benefits of being or experiencing a state of self-loss? So fascinating. I think there is a sense of being uninhibited when you're lost in terms of you get to experience things almost for the first time. You get to entertain ideas you haven't entertained. You don't have these preconceived ideas and beliefs perhaps or values or morals that you're grasping onto so tightly. You might feel so lost that it could be overwhelming because of the freedom, but also it can be the beginning of the creation of self. Now, because existentialism is probably the opposite of what you're describing. I do think that there is similarities in terms of, I don't think the self is static. I don't think you find yourself. I I don't like that phrase. That's a passive phrase that believes your sense of self was already created and given to you. And all you do is grasp it. And either you fail to do so, or you don't. I like you create your sense of self, which, which is an ongoing experience. And for me, it's malleable. It's fluid. It's constantly emerging from your experiences, from your interactions, from the things that you're learning. And so I don't know how I would compare it to Eastern philosophy in that sense, but I think both are looking from your description. It's like both have a sense of fluidity and freedom and they're not constrained by it. But I think in existentialism, it's an ongoing thing that you're constantly creating and taking responsibility for for molding and evolving as you experience different things in your life. And so if you go, this is who I am now, and then you live 15 years and you didn't bother (laughs) to create your sense of self, to evolve your sense of self, to start acting like this person here in this reality, and you're still acting like you're in college because that was authentic when you were in college, that's the problem. And so I do think that there is freedom in how much play we can have with it and how, yes, you might make a mistake. And then you can also use that same power to make it right. And then you can experiment with who you are. And I think when we do something, we have have an idea of who we are. So maybe we're like, I'm so thoughtful and I'm so kind and I'm so patient. And then I see you in the car and someone cuts you off and you're not so patient and you're not so kind. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. But I think in that moment, we have two options. We can either change our perception of ourselves and go, okay, maybe I'm not as kind as I think I am, right? Because you're looking for alignment between your thought and your action. So you have to change your thought. You go, "Mm, okay, maybe I'm not so kind. Or you change your action. And next time someone cuts you off, you don't yell, you don't honk. 
But what we're looking for is constantly alignment between your perception of who you are and the feedback you get from the world, depending on how you show up. And so I think that's why it's so malleable. And that's why, depending what you experience and if you decide to change your thought or your action, you're constantly evolving and changing. And I think there's something really liberating and fun about that. Yeah. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Do you have a sense that um, so many of us define ourselves in the earlier parts of our lives, and that may go into like 20s and 30s even, mm-hmm. in no small part in relation to how others expect us to be, whether it's family, whether it's like friend groups, whether, and that we're so concerned about being accepted and, and complying to the norms of those who we want to be seen as being a part of that we don't even really explore in any meaningful way who we are until something happens that kind of shatters that model and forces us to say like, but outside of the expectation of others, who am I actually? Oh yeah. Such a wonderful question. Absolutely. I think a lot of us want to belong and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a innate human need, desire, I think we need to stop shaming each other for wanting to belong, but I think you get to choose who you want to belong to. And that's where your power is. Do you want to belong to someone who will actually see you for you, who will give you the space and the freedom to experiment with who you are and to grow and evolve? Or do you want to belong to a group of people that have a very distinct expectation of how you need to show up? And I think when we're in our twenties, 
I mean, we're all belonging to each other and no one knows who they are. And it's a really neat kind of experience. But I think part of the problem is that we confuse our roles as, as our identity. And so we'll take on one role or two roles and then be like, that's just who I am. It's like, no, that's part of who you are. That is how you're showing up in the world. But you're also so much more. So, you know, if you're in college and you play sports, you're like, I'm a jock. And if you're, you know, in chem, you're like, I'm an intellectual. Like, and that's fine. That can be a part of you. But I think we get so attached to our roles and roles come with a lot of expectations. And I think sometimes we just need to zoom back and go like, there are a bunch of roles in my life. What are all the roles that I am participating in? What are all the expectations? Which ones align? Which ones don't? And I think this is where we need to be a little more careful with what roles we take on as time goes on. And you're right. Like so many of us do what's necessary and then a crisis hits and either you experience something traumatic or you became a mother or a father, or, you know, you lost your job or you're relocating and something is plucking you away from your normal context and putting you in a different one. And that's when we usually recognize the lostness because when we're in the routine it's so hard to notice that we're lost because we're an autopilot. And I think it's usually with like a big shift that is asking us to, to ground in ourselves or protect ourselves that we realize that we're not actually sure who that is. Do you have a sense then when somebody hits that moment, maybe it's a slow awakening, maybe it's an actual something that happens. And in that moment, it's almost like you didn't know that you had lost yourself along the way until you're plucked out of that scenario and you're forced to really take a look at who you are and what matters. And that oftentimes that's the moment where you're like, I really don't know. I don't know what I care about. I don't know what I'm passionate about. I don't know what I love. I don't know who I am without being in relation to this other person or group or company or organization. And I really want to figure it out. And, and you offer some great ideas and insights. But to a certain extent, it sounds like we're also experiencing a death. Yeah. A death that maybe has actually been unfolding for years or decades without us paying attention to it. But then something happens and we have to recognize there was either a sense of self that was born earlier that is now no longer here or it was never there. But there's got to be this experience of grief that comes along with that realization that we have to grapple with along with then figuring out how do we actually figure out like what is myself? Yeah, there is so much grief and so much loss. And it's, you know, this is not something I've written about in my book, but it came out in my research really prominently. And that was the feeling of death. A lot of people experienced in self-loss. Like they would be like, I felt like I was dying. I felt like I was drowning. I felt like I was being set on fire. Like people would use this vocabulary of like their death, like they're describing their death when they're talking about self-loss. And I think I didn't make the book super dark, so I didn't quite go there yet. Book two, but it is fascinating. And I think there is a grieving because maybe you never knew who you were. Maybe that sense of self was never constructed and maybe it was and you lost it. But in the end, it's kind of irrelevant because the you're in this situation of self-loss. I think what makes self-loss so painful is the fact that most of us have participated in it. We are the reason why it unfolded the way that it did. And I think there was willingness, even if it was passive and somewhat accidental, there was still, you know, we made those decisions. That was our responsibility. And I think that's really difficult when we're grieving who we were or the fact we never knew who we were. I think we're also grieving 
the way that we've treated ourselves. I see this with my clients all the time where for them, the hardest thing to forgive or to grieve is how they treated themselves, how they've allowed themselves to be so lost. And I think we just need to have so much compassion in situations like that. But I also understand it's different to go, okay, this person caused my pain than to go, this person pushed me, but then I decided to also do X, Y, and Z, which led to this pain. And so I think the participation is where the shock is. And then we get this kind of sense of distrust, which is dangerous. Then we go, I can't trust myself. I can't protect myself. I can't rely on my intuition. And then we spiral. It's almost to an extent when there's a big event that causes self-loss, that's almost easier for us to understand and grapple with than when it's quiet and almost passive and gradual. And it's kind of an erosion of self that occurs over years. And then you go, okay, how did this happen? And you realize it was just you know, the fact that you didn't pack the extra batteries when you went underwater, you know, it's something like that. We are like, wow, I made small decisions that I didn't think were important that now led to this really terrifying consequence. I would imagine you see this a lot also in um, parents that yeah. you know, on the one hand, it's got to be almost like disconcerting too, because on the one hand, you're stepping into this new identity and there's no training for that. There's no, no, you just, you, you wake up every day, you're rolling with it and you're figuring out like, how do I step into this new identity or part of me that is like playing, like playing the parent mm-hmm. and maybe you love it and you're passionate about it. And it's such an enriching part of your life. And at the same time, I wonder if the deeper you get into that, there is more opportunity for that to pull you further away from an essence that existed there before that you become increasingly estranged from. And then at some point, start to mourn that loss. As much as you may be joyful about like the fact of that you course. have a wonderful family and kids. And that's got to be just such a complex set of feelings to deal with. So complex. I kind of wish that people warned parents about it. You know, like when you become a parent, it's either going to feel like another additional beautiful form of self-expression or it's going to feel like a threat. And sometimes you don't know until you're in it already. And I think even if you do think it's a beautiful form of self-expression, yourself is how you act. I've kind of alluded to this. There is no self without your actions. You can't just think about yourself and that's that self-actualization. Your actions create the self. And so I think what happens is because all our actions or actions of parents become about the child and the role of a mother, a father, or a caregiver, they then start to see themselves purely as that one thing. And the rest of it is lost. And I think it's because all their actions and the way they're expressing the self is all towards one particular role. And I think one of the best things to do is to, I mean, this is so hard and people talk about it all the time. It's the most cliche, but it's like, make sure you still do things that represent you that are outside of parenting. And and that's such a simple advice. It's actually quite difficult to implement when you're that busy and overwhelmed. But I think it's actually preserving your sense of self of like allowing you to still feel like you. Because again, Becoming just the role of a parent will never represent you holistically. And I think the more, the longer we do it, we'll start losing 
connection with any other part of us that that was there that could be there because all we're focusing on is something external and parenting is beautiful but it is external mm. you know and we tell people like don't get lost in your romantic relationships make sure you have a relationship with yourself yeah also in parenting and i understand the first year you need to keep them alive like <laughs> this is this is really important but you know whenever your gaze is constantly external that's i think what can threaten the internal connection if you're not paying attention long enough after two, three years of being a really great parent, you're not going to know who you are if you haven't taken the time to internally look at yourself. So let's talk a little bit about that process. Let's say for whatever reason, you find yourself at a moment in life where you realize you're like, I don't know who I am. I don't know mm. what direction to turn to or what to think about, what to do to start to figure it out. And I really do want to figure this out because the way that I'm feeling right now, I don't want to keep feeling. How does somebody start to take action in that moment? I think about it as dating. Um, <laughs> in terms of remember going on a first date, regardless if that was yesterday or 50 years ago, but what you do is you become hyper-observant. You're like, they grazed my arm. Was it on purpose? Was it an accident? Their feet, are they, you know, <laughs> are they facing me in my direction? Okay, they laughed. They seem funny. They asked a thoughtful question. Oh, okay, I feel like they believe this about money or politics or whatever it is. And what we're doing is we're just observing and taking it in and trying to make sense of it. And we're so interested because we're so infatuated. And that's kind of the intensity with which I think we should approach ourselves. It's like, okay, I keep crossing my arms when I'm in this meeting. Is this an accident or is it not? Is my body language an accident? Okay. I keep feeling this, or I, I'm not feeling anything. And I think it's observing ourselves. A good question that I like to ask and get people to journal about is what did I learn about myself? The reason you do that is because implicitly what I'm asking you is observe and acknowledge, first of all, or else you won't be able to answer that question. And then every day your awareness will build on itself. And, you know, I break it down to mental, emotional, and physical in my book. And for example, for me, during my self-loss, the number one thing that suffered was my emotionality, my, my ability to tap into my emotions. I think that from a really young age, I went into self-preservation. There was no self-exploration, self-awareness. There was no space for that within those couple of years of tension. And then while I was, you know, going through my teenage years and my early twenties, I forgot that I was no longer under threat and maybe not forgot. That's what trauma does. I still thought I was threatened and I still had to just survive. And for a long time I was just surviving. And so what I was not sitting there journaling about my feelings, I was like, do I have money for tuition? Am I getting good grades? Will I get a scholarship? And, you know, I had manifestations that were quote unquote admirable, but all I was trying to do was make sure that I was okay. And I was going to survive looking back. That was my form of survival. And so I think for me, I was so disconnected that if you asked me how I was feeling, I wouldn't really be able to tell you. So that's where I started. And, you know, now I do these exercises where I ask people to put a timer for like seven seconds. And then I'd be like, okay, in seven seconds, write down four emotions you're feeling right now. A lot of people can't do that. Or 
four seconds, one emotion you're feeling. A lot of people struggle to do that. And that's because we're not constantly having the inner dialogue and this back and forth of like, what am I feeling? And so many of us feel so many things at once and we're just not taught how to access it. And so for me, my journey started with like, what am I feeling Um, how am I going to use that as a messenger rather than a threat? How am I not going to allow my emotions to dictate my actions and still validate them? And so it was a lot of emotion, like work around emotions for other individuals. It's a lot about, you know, their beliefs and, and habits and more the mental decluttering. What are the things they need to let go of the narratives they need to let go of so they can make space to construct the narratives that actually will serve them. And then, you know, the body. So I think if you're listening, what area do you feel the most disconnected? Cause we all feel disconnected to varying degrees to all three. And that's so normal. And sometimes it's really overwhelming to go work on all three, like your body and your mind and your, and it's like, if you had a hierarchy, what would it, you know, what would it sound like? And for me it was emotions, body, the mind. And so I felt the most disconnected from my emotional inner self. And so that's what I started working on. And then eventually I stumbled upon my body and was like, okay, the fact that I don't know where these bruises come from is a sign that I'm not paying attention. You know, I slammed into something pretty freaking hard. If I have a giant bruise, how do I not remember that? Like, why was my instinct not to pay attention and honor my body and see what he needed and acknowledge the pain that it was going through? You know, and so I think, why do I, you know, I started to not watch TV or be on my phone when I'm eating lunch for many reasons, part because I should learn to be bored once again. I think that's a good feeling. But also it's like, how about you engage with your body with the taste and the smell and the signals of like, does that feel right for you? Does that not feel right for you? You know, dancing, whatever you want to do. But it was like learning what my body was trying to communicate, getting my body seat at the table, understanding that what he had to say was just as important as what my mind and my heart had to say. And so, you know, it depends where you're at. I would get a little hierarchy going, pick that thing, be intentional about it, see how you can really connect to that part of yourself and then work your way down. Yeah, that's so interesting to sort of set up those three, like mind, body, emotion, and then ask yourself, you know, like some version of where do I feel, what's my relative sense of connection to each of these three? What what do I feel most disconnected to or connected to? And kind of start there. It sounds like what you're describing is really, you just basically, you just run a series of experiments, but you don't do things just to do them. At the same time, you do them and then you inquire into them and you basically say, how is that making me feel? What is this telling me about Mm -hmm. myself that I didn't know before? So it's not even about like, oh, I'm going to go on a date. Like this date has to succeed. I hope it works. It's more like, I'm just going to do this because I want to see what it's going to tell me about myself. And that to a certain extent, it's almost like it lets the (laughs) takes the pressure off striving for any outcomes with any of these things that you're doing. Because it's just the only thing that your, your metric is just learning. Like, did it teach me something about myself? I love that. And I love that for dates. That's advice I give clients all the time. It's like, instead of sitting there and being like, is it going to work? Do they like me? What did I learn about themselves? Like, think about what you're learning about who you are as you're on this date. And I think that's a really fun reframe. And I think the creation of self is trial and error, you know, and I I think that that's great. And I use uh, Julia Roberts as an example, I don't know, in the book with like, She's someone who used in in the movie Runaway Bride um, used to eat eggs 
depending on who she was dating, what that what their favorite eggs were. So she would pretend that it was boiled or scrambled or whatever, and that those were her favorite eggs, when in reality it was just the eggs of the person she was dating. And that's how they like them. And um, there's a scene in the movie where she realizes that she's doing this. I'm trying to make this story shorter, and I made it longer. And the point is she goes home and makes like eight different types of eggs in her dining room table, sitting there, gets a spoon, and starts eating. And tasting because she goes, okay, I pretended for so long (laughs) to like these types of eggs. I actually don't know what I want. So I'm going to sit here. I'm going to taste it. I'm going to figure it out. And I think that's such a profound example. It's so simple and kind of silly, but it's the best. It's like, that's what you need to do with life. Sometimes grab a spoon, start tasting things and figure out, does this align? Is this who I want to be? Does this work for me? Does this not work for me? Do I like it? Do I not like it? And stop putting so much pressure to just know, because I think some things just need to be experienced before you can figure out, okay, I would do that again. I would not do that again. That choice was okay. That choice, you know, should have looked a little different and I'm creating my sense of self in a very deliberate, intentional way. And so I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to be human or to even be yourself. I think there has to be a sense of playfulness that comes with it because it is, the world is absurd. <laughs> so, so, so if you believe the world is a little absurd, then just kind of have fun with it and enjoy the mess that comes with, you know, creating your sense of self. And I love that you've basically just given me permission to go and ask to taste every flavor of ice cream next time I'm in like the local ice cream store. Oh my God, please. You'd be like, I'm figuring out my authentic self. <laughs> like Sarah told me to do it. It's okay. I'm, I'm trying to discover. I'm fine. I'm reassembling myself. It's all good. Should we start a trend? I think we should start a trend where people like go and experience a food, a type of food, a bunch of it to figure out what they like. Okay. I think we should do this. <laughs> social media goal. I think this is going to be like a, a new club, a new, like a new challenge, the social media challenge. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> food for identity. Oh my gosh. Yes. It occurs to me also that, that one of the things that we're really talking about here without naming it is, is the meta skill of awareness because we can run all these experiments. We can try all these different things. Unless we cultivate the skill of being aware of what it's telling us, it's kind of, it's all for naught. Mm-hmm. Do you have, I, I mean, I have a longstanding mindfulness practice, which has been just so helpful to me in cultivating that skill on a regular basis. But I feel like a lot of us walk through life on much more autopilot we're with, without mm-hmm. a sense of scanning and inquiring into Do you have a sense for sort of like an easy first step into cultivating the skill of awareness? A hard question. Mm. The reason why I think it's a hard question is because I think the number one, maybe I don't want to be that grandiose, but a huge obstacle to self-awareness is lack of safety. Mm. It doesn't feel safe enough to see the truth. It doesn't feel safe enough to see the reality because you don't think you can handle it because you will require change. And, you know, as a therapist, you'll encounter clients sometimes where you're like, I think this, you know, I have an example where I I had a hunch that something happened to the client. They didn't want to, they didn't talk about it. And until they build enough sense of inner safety, they didn't admit to themselves, not to me, had nothing to do with with me. It was, they went, oh my God, that was traumatic. Like they weren't ready to admit that reality and be aware of that reality until they felt safe enough that they can handle the burden that it comes with Mm. and the pain that it comes with. And I think 
so many of us want to push self-awareness, which by the way, I think is like the foundation of every change. So I'm one of those people, but I think we also have to be so careful because if there's no safety, self-awareness can be quite painful and traumatic and cause a lot of damage. The person needs to be, needs to have the skills and the inner safety to face their truth. That's something I talk about in the book. So you know, I think self-awareness is great in terms of you can do little journaling questions of like, what was the dominant like thought I had? What was an emotion that kind of ran through the day? How is my body feeling? Really scanning and starting with the basic three, I think, components we were talking about, but like a little question for each to to start getting that awareness. But I think more than that, it's working on safety. Do you trust yourself? If you were to face something that was really painful, do you think that you can handle it? If the answers are no, I think then the shift has to be on safety before Mm. self-awareness. And I think that that's a step we don't talk about enough. Yeah, that's such an important point. And I would imagine a part of that, if the answer is no, I don't feel safe enough, is do I feel like I can cultivate that quality myself or... Would Mm -hmm. it really help me to be better resourced to go and find somebody who can help me through this, who can, whether it's a friend, family, or a qualified mental health professional, because we're not all capable of just, everyone's been through a lot of different things. And a lot of times we need help in creating that. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. It's okay to ask for support and so many of us need it. And, you know, and this is kind of chicken or the egg, but most of us will just pay attention to all the times you made the wrong calls or made the mistakes, you know, or things you regret. Sometimes I'll get people to just write down like, what are the choices you made that were actually good? Mm. Because they don't think about them. And I think sometimes it's just about being aware (laughs) of all the times you showed up for yourself and all the times you created safety. And sometimes we do need someone else to ask us that question. But, you know, if you're someone who's not feeling super comfortable and super trusting of yourself right now, I think maybe writing a little list of like, when are all the times I showed up for myself? When are all the times I protected myself? That can be really helpful to like read over every day as you're working in your self-awareness, just so that you have that life jacket on as you're like jumping off the boat. Yeah. I love those suggestions. And I love just planting the seed of awareness and, and safety as this dual exploration, because I kind of have to go along hand in hand for it to be effective and not potentially even um, be like dysfunctional or deepening into something that paralyzes or, or worse. Zooming the lens out, you know, I think it's such an important moment for us to be exploring this sense of self, this sense of self loss and the sense of self recreation or exploration discovery. And the way that you tee it up is like, yeah, there are big issues here, but at the same time, what if we could step into this from with a matter of just like childlike curiosity, almost like a, you know, like a, a stance of wonder, a stance of mm-hmm. play. Like what if this was just something that we got to explore, not that we had to explore? And what would I do? And what choices would I make if that was the way I was stepping into it? So it feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation. So in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? And it's going to sound so cliche because of our conversation, but I think a life that you own, a life that's yours, a life that you possess, I think a good life is a life that that is yours. And so even if you make a mistake and you go, but that was my mistake, (laughs) 
And, you know, it's like, okay, but that was my regret. Okay. That was my relationship. I think there's something so beautiful. And I think a good life is not a perfect life, but it's a life that belongs to you. Mm, Thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also love the conversation we had with Nedra Glover-Tawab about how boundaries affect our sense of self. You'll find a link to Nedra's episode in the show notes. This episode of Good Life Project was produced by executive producers Lindsay Fox and me, Jonathan Fields. Editing help by Alejandro Ramirez, Christopher Carter crafted our theme music, and special thanks to Shelley Dell for her research on this episode. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor and share it maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person, just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those, you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen, then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.